When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. George Culkin alongside me, and we're joined today by Martin O'Neill, one of the most fascinating and respected figures in the game. Part of Brian Clough's legendary Nottingham Forest team, winning league championships, league cups, and back-to-back European Cups. He represented Northern Ireland over 60 times, playing alongside George Best and captaining the side at the 1982 World Cup. As a manager, he won trophies in England and Scotland, and he then led the Republic of Ireland to the Euros in 2016 when they made it to the second round for the first time in their history. It's some career, Martin. Uh, why write the book now? I suppose, really, I, I just wanted to put a a couple of little stories that um, that perhaps no one had heard, and uh, I suppose Brian Clough was always uh, always somebody of of interest. And I suppose just maybe because of the fifty years I've been involved in the game, Mark, I think I straddled both the post World Cup of nineteen sixty six into the early seventies when pitches weren't as good as they are today, and then uh, the changes that have taken place throughout the game both good and maybe not so good during that time. Have you enjoyed it? Uh, very much so. Yeah, really much so. I, I mean, I've written it myself, you know, so it's kind of a um, little bit strange. I, I'm, I wrote in longhand as well, too. So, uh, and uh, I start off very nicely. You know, the first six or seven lines are pretty legible. You know, it's fine. And then when I get a bit scraggly, then after that. So sending some, some, some of my lines off to the publishers at the time, I think that they were finding it a wee bit difficult in the last four or five pages of any any particular chapter to to decipher. But that's that's too bad. That's their job. I photocopied all the stuff that I would uh, I would have written down, and uh, send it to them, and uh, and then they could speak into a machine for me, you know, and then uh, correct the correct the uh, the uh, the tone or the language as such. So eventually, uh, eventually between both, you know, between longhand sending some stuff to the publishers. And doing it in a in a in a, in a better fashion, perhaps than uh, uh, well. Let me put it this way, George. I'll tell you, if uh, if my two daughters hadn't been around, the book would have been still stuck uh, <laughs> somewhere between uh, somewhere between here and Manchester. I sometimes feel that football people haven't read their own autobiographies, let alone uh, let alone written them. So you're <laughs> you're definitely strange in that, in that regard. I definitely know two people who never. Who hadn't read theirs, you know? So, uh, <laughs> Has it led to sort of reflection in, in, I mean, obviously it is because you're going back over your career, but once you've gone through that pro- process, do you have some sort of sense about your career? Do you, do you feel... Do you feel one way about it that it's been successful? That, do you, that it's unfulfilled? That you'll you still have more to do? How do you feel about your life? I think a lot of those things, George. For a start, when I when I was putting the the pieces together, and um, I, I mean it would be lovely to be to be able to see yourself as other people see you. I don't. I actually think I'm 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 an okay bloke. But actually, when I was writing this, yeah, I realised I'm just a cantankerous git, <laughs> you know. So uh, and uh, and falling out with everybody. 
as um, as Alan Parry, my a director at Wicked Wonders and um, a commentator for um, ITV and Sky at times, said to me, "Hey Martin, you would you would resign if someone nicked your car parking space." I think there's an element of me in that there, which which uh, unfortunately probably comes out. But is that cantankerous, or is that just wanting people to do? The right thing. Because arguably, I mean, you mentioned Brian Clough right at the start. Brian Clough may have been eccentric in some of his own behaviours, but he, he wanted people to to do the right thing, didn't he? Of course. Oh, absolutely, Mark. I mean, that you, we are now talking about probably not only, to me, the most uh, charismatic football manager, uh, but also maybe the most charismatic man I've ever met in my life. And really, he obviously stepped in a way back in, in January 1975 having had a torrid 44-day period with Leeds United a couple of months earlier, and uh, and changed, changed not only the course of Nottingham Forest, but obviously changed our lives. I'm talking about myself, Viv Anderson, Tony Woodcock, John Robertson, you know, people that did. So I, would would John Robertson have been a really good player? Yes. Would uh, would Tony Woodcock? I, uh, absolutely. Would Viv? Yes. Would we have won the uh, the league and the... And the um, what's called the Champions League now, the European Cup, without Brian Clough? Absolutely not. Did you view yourself then, when you went into management, as being able to change people's lives? Because that that that, <laughs> that is your role, whether it is for a player or a fan or the staff. You can change people's lives, Martin. Well, Mark, winning football matches changes everyone's, changes one's outlook for, for games. And the more games you win, and if you, finally, if you finally can clinch a trophy at the end of that season, of course it's going to make a marked difference to people's lives, you know? Possibly even financially, although my, uh, I have to say that didn't occur with um, with us at Nottingham Forest. Brian was very, very tight with the money, very tight indeed. I I signed I signed four one year contracts, always thinking that life was going to be better at the end of each year, and we were and we were winning, and but it, it it never really was. You had obviously some fantastic days, and of course because you're winning and you're winning at the highest level, these sort of influences uh, kind of hang around. You talk about Clough. Clough at Leeds there, Martin. How much in management is it sometimes just being at the wrong place at the wrong time? And, and do you reflect on that yourself too? Yes, George. It was never going to work for Brian Clough at Leeds United. It was never for the simple reason he criticised a team that were absolutely brilliant and told them to throw their medals in the bin because they were cheating. And 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 so and he had said that a couple of months beforehand, So or, or, or maybe even on the day or second day that he had arrived. So whether he meant it in a jocular fashion or not, this is going to stick with the likes of Billy Bremner and Johnny Giles. And they're saying, oh, excuse me, who is this? He, you know, he might be down, he might be every third week on, on Michael Parkinson's show, but he's not going to tell us how to play the game because Leeds United at that particular time were, you know, the, 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 the definitely the best team in the country if, and one of the best teams in Europe with a, as a selection of brilliant players. That was never going to work. I agree with you. And you can actually go someplace and it's just maybe it's just maybe the wrong time. And uh, I, but I suppose I suppose George, you probably have to try and make it the right time for you. Know this is the whole point. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's no such thing as a, a, a perfect job. You have to do the best you can. You might assimilate a, a number of things during the course of that time, but you still have to try and make it right. I suppose I was asking that question. I, I first got to know you at, at, at Sunderland, and you know that was a it was a treat for me and a, an absolute privilege. And it felt you know it felt on the face of it that that was the perfect job for you. Uh, you were coming back to your to, to the club you supported as a boy. Growing up, you loved Charlie Hurley. There was that initial sort of injection of great results and it, it just felt perfect. And yet very quickly, 
it wasn't perfect. It had very little to do with you, and it was to do with the sort of the ownership. But I suppose that's what I mean. That sometimes what feels looks obvious can sometimes not be the opposite. Of course, if ever there was a a club that I really wanted to do well, I mean, I I it it, it didn't matter how how good or bad they were when you stepped into the in, into the job. If if ever there was a club that you really wanted to bring into the Champions League, it was Sunderland. Because I'd supported them as a kid, because you mentioned Charlie Hurley, because you mentioned those days of growing up and and um, and being really supportive of it. As you mentioned, George, getting a good set of results early on that really just uh, masked, I think, uh, uh, a number of deficiencies we had. But deep down at the end of it all, I'm well aware you still have to win football matches. That's the bottom line. And uh, and eventually that season, although we had 31 points from 31 games, and I do believe had I stayed the last seven games of the season, we would have acquired the five points. But it wasn't to be, George, and that became a, a, a yeah, absolutely a massive disappointment. Was it different managing a club that you had such a close connection to? Of course, in many aspects, yes. But as it was a different market, they'd gone to a different stadium, so it was no longer it was no longer Roker Park, where I, as an you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen year old, was supporting this team from a long distance away in Ireland. I must admit, there weren't a, a horde of Sunderland supporters during a. During my grammar school days, you know, where is Sunderland? You no, know, that type of stuff. But from that viewpoint, they'd gone to the Stadium of Light, which is a really fine stadium. So I, I, I think you could differentiate a little bit. But it's essentially, when you boil it all down, it was Sunderland, and Sunderland is still a fantastic football club that is that is that's just crying out for success. We live in an era. And you may contradict me here and say it has always been like this, but we live in an era, it feels like, where managers have to connect with their fan base. Nigh on immediately they get the job, otherwise they're managing they're managing with one hand tied behind their back. Has it always been like that? Or, for example, I had an Aston Villa fan on last week, I think, after the Unai Emery appointment, say, saying that Villa fans, in their opinion hadn't been as excited about an appointment as Villa manager since you were appointed. And I just wonder about that connection between managers and fans and whether you've you've always felt that's important or whether that become, has become more of a modern day thing. You definitely need a fan connection, maybe more so than ever before. Two things about this. Number one, I went to Leicester City, couldn't win a game to save my life, crowds baying for your blood and luckily turning it round at a time to to actually, you know, do really, really well. But honestly, I, I'm probably, I'm maybe two defeats away from, from not being in the job. But, and and as it turns out, I love Leicester City. It turned out to be terrific, you know, top 10 finishes and then and a, and a, and a couple of League Cup wins. But that could so easily have gone gone the other way. And talking about Aston Villa, uh, we had three successive top six finishes. But the point is this here, that uh, uh, to my disappointment, I know you make the mistakes. You, I, I really should have buried the hatchet with Randy Lerner, the owner, and fought and, and really fought on. So from those from that aspect, when you're stepping in now as a manager into the football club, people are demanding results immediately. You can put a stat up any given at any given stage. You know, you can run through if somebody hasn't won a game in three, you say, oh, one point out of nine or something like this. And you feel as if you're under immediate pressure. Now, not for one second did that not managers were being sacked in my time uh, as, a, as, a, as a player, but they seemed as if they were getting longer. And of course, there's a lot of things, you know, the social media. As my daughter used to say to me, Dad, so this is at Wickham Wonders, Mark, a very young daughter. And she realized that Saturday evening in some Chinese shop in High Wickham was going to be fine. We were going to be eating if we could win the game. 
And she realized that my mood would be terrible if we didn't win. So every single, every single week, she raced out to the cars. I'm heading off to the game. She said, Dad, just win. Just win. So you just, you got to win. You got to win for, that's what the name of the game is. Fans can be disappointed nowadays as soon as a manager is appointed because they don't have the right image or the right perception. That to me feels different from 20 years ago. I agree with you. Absolutely agree with you. You know, there can be preconceived notions about a manager, his style of play, all that type of stuff. Absolutely. I do agree with you. You're not going to change it overnight. Let me put it this way. Then it's up to the manager to change the view. Again, a wee bit like my time at Leicester City. I, you know, I probably was perceived as a an ex Nottingham Forest player just down the road. And what's he going to come to our club to do? And I had I'd left Norwich. Uh, Mark McGee had gone from Leicester City, so there was turmoil around about the club, and it seemed to uh, it seemed to be personified really in many many aspects. So from that viewpoint. Yeah, you had to try and uh, try and win and try and win early. Sometimes, though, it's not just about winning, is it? I mean, if I look back at your time with the Republic of Ireland, which ostensibly very, very successful, you got them to the European Championships. I was covering the Republic at the time. Again, lovely to be able to kind of have a cup of tea with you every now and again, Martin. We'd have a chat, chat and a gossip. It was it was brilliant. But it felt to me like you you were judged on more than winning when you were Ireland manager. That that almost wasn't good enough. Did you have that sense too? Absolutely. Absolutely, George. Yes, uh, qualification. My my job when I when John Delaney appointed me, John Delaney being the CEO, when he appointed me, that my next contract depended on us qualifying for the Euros. That's really as simple as that. There, that was my job. It didn't mean, perhaps it didn't mean that they might not have given me an, another contract, but really, if we could qualify for the Euros, I was going to get an uh, uh, an extension of a contract. My remit was not to change the face or the you know sort out the 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 woes and the travails of of uh, League of Ireland football overnight. That was not my job. Eventually, if you stay long enough in something, then you can be able to designate. You can be do things, and you can be an overseer of what is happening within the within the within the groups. And do you know what it was, George? As much as anything else, I didn't get the Irish media, and they didn't get me. You know, so even now, France in tw- in twenty sixteen never existed. You know, it feels as if that uh, we didn't get there. I wanted to try and lead the Republic of Ireland into a, into a, a, either Euros or a World Cup. When we did that, as you say, it probably wasn't good enough. They're t- deciding that they wanted to play a style of football that was perhaps maybe even alien to the to the players that we had. We had to work exceptionally hard with players. With respect, we didn't have too many players playing in the big league. Seamus Coleman might might have been uh, might have been just the exception. Some young lads came along and did very very well, like Robbie Brady and Jeff Hendry. In fact, I actually believe that they got moves from club to club, not because of their club form, but what they did with the Republic of Ireland. But eventually, losing losing heavily at home to Denmark in the playoff for the World Cup in a playoff game was um, was the stick in which to beat me with. Unfortunately, uh, it uh, it ended rather, uh, you know, I suppose a bit fraught really in many aspects. But you know, not to overlook the fact that we did qualify. But I take your point entirely. I think that um, uh, winning there was just not enough. Did you enjoy international managing international football? I mean, because from the outside looking in, it can appear quite dull for a lot of the year. For somebody who has been in football all his life, you then have weeks of, you know, just travelling around watching the odd game rather than getting your hands dirty. Absolutely. Yeah, totally different to club level for that very point you make. If you have a bad result on a Saturday, you think you maybe there might be a midweek game in which to put it right. Here, if you lost a game in November, 
it's Christmas is going to be really, really tough. And your next game is in March time. So, yes, you are. You're spending a lot of time watching footballers play that you probably really know plenty about already. That's when we qualified in the in 2016, Mark. It actually, and we had three weeks preparation after the season had ended. It really felt like a, a club side then at that stage, you know, because you're actually able to to activate and do some uh, do some extra work with the players that you wouldn't have been able to have done with two days training for just uh, two days uh, practice before uh, an international game mid-season. And that's why you're in the thick of it. And you want to be in the thick of it with your mind whirring over, don't you? Absolutely right. So, yes, oh, the differences are day and night. But it's yeah. not as if to say I didn't know that. Is there an ageism in football management, do you think, in the way that we look at managers? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I and there's very, very much that, George, you know. So if you're asking me now, I have as much energy as I had maybe 20 years ago in the game, as much energy, as much drive and and uh, and uh, and determination. And you would have to say a lot of experience as well, too. But uh, maybe maybe myself, you know, I've kind of hidden behind COVID. I don't actually have an agent, never had one to, you know, to push yourself forward in many aspects. And and Sir Alex Ferguson once said to me when I went up to one of his functions one time, that was just after Aston Villa, don't stay out too long, Martin, the game. He said, you get forgotten very quickly. He was generalising, but that's, that's what he meant. So stay out of the game. But yes, there's all of that. And there's perceptions, you know, big perceptions in the game and there's uh, reputations can be made or broken on certain things. I remember at one point, it was I two weeks into my playing time at Nottingham Forest. And I'm going back to late 1971. I'm walking down the training ground and the uh, the youth team coach comes over to me, a, a man called Bert Johnson, who had played for Charlton Athletic. I think either played in the cup final or won the cup final. Really, really nice man. And I don't know how the conversation got around, but he was the first one ever to tell me. He said, Martin, you know, this game is about reputations. And he was, wee, he was being a little bit cynical. And he did say to me, he said, if you get a reputation for being an early riser, you can lie in bed all day. And I think, <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. You know, so there, there is a sense, isn't there, that, that kind of football has been reinvented in the last five or ten years by, you know, the use of certain phrases, whether it's Gagan pressing <laughs> and the high press versus the low block. But all that stuff existed in your day, didn't it, as a player? Yes, we're coaching the game now in a, in, in a different language. And I noticed that, and particularly young managers having to come out with these phrases, either to feel that they're not, they don't feel outdated if they don't use them, or they feel as if, well, you know, yeah, well, everybody's using the word transition. Everybody's using the high press, the low block, the words now. You, there is a, definitely a managerial spiel that you can hear. And uh, and it does it does make me smile. I must admit. What do you want to do now? Again, getting back to my daughters who that who um, helped enormously with many things. I said, Dad, at least, Dad, if you are if you're writing this book, it realise that that you're actually still alive because most people think you're dead. So, <laughs> so, so okay, so I'm alive. So it's good. <laughs> and, Anyway, I'm, I'm, I must be about talking to you two. I suppose with management, it's one of those horrible things that quite a lot of the time you don't get the choice when it ends. You know, you don't get that choice. Mm, Has yeah. going back through everything at least sort of helped you put a full stop? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's a full stop forever, but, mm. allow, you know, given you that sort of sense of closure a bit on on some of the periods that were difficult? George, for all the successes that, that I've had in the game, I brood over I brood over the disappointments and the losses. You know, the UEFA Cup final in two thousand and three. 
I mean, I only think about that there 14 times a day. <laughs> and losing to, uh, having beaten Rangers, smashed Rangers at Ibrox, then to lose the league two games later or three games later against Motherwell. I, it, 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 honestly, it, it, uh, it's frightening. So, uh, and all the other, you know, what you call successes, you know, I, I, you can put those in the bin, but it's those things that keep me up at night. Has it been cathartic in some way? I suppose it probably has. The book has been uh, told with, I hate to use these words, Mark, a bit of honesty, you know, because, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's my perception, particularly particularly some of the some of the stories were were Brian Clough. I used to feel I had to I had to win his approval every single day. And I got really irritated with some of the players who were being praised by him. I didn't mean irritated. I'm probably jealous or or um, or envious of the fact that he used to say to John Robertson, who was a fantastic player, John, brilliant. And then O'Neill, if you don't do a bit better, I'm going to replace you with the linesman. I was told the other day uh, by someone who worked with you that you used to go around Nottingham with a sign over you that said, I- I'm a footballer too, if if the Nottingham Forest team were on a night out. Is that right? It was a joke. It, it, I mean, <laughs> it was a joke that I made at my own expense, you know, because at that time in Nottingham, when we were starting to go well, and I used to pretend that I was—I uh, had still had to wear a placard saying I'm a footballer, you know. So it's probably a statement of the obvious, but that he—he he was the kind of the most important professional relationship you've had in your career, wasn't he? But it wasn't—it it, it wasn't an easy relationship for you, was it? Not at all, Jordan. Not at all. I, I again, I'm trying to seek his approval all the time. When he did praise you, as he did in the second European Cup final, I mean, at half time in the game against Hamburg, when he was trying to make a positional change. Never forget this. We're coming in. We're we're leading one nil in the European Cup final in Madrid. Come in at half time in the game, and he was wanting to make some sort of positional change. He kind of said, "Would somebody volunteer for it?" And uh, so I kind of put my hand up or something. He said, "No, you stay there. So you stay in that position that you're there." He said, "Because you're playing brilliantly." What? So I would admit I couldn't wait for the second half to come out. You know, so it give you it re-energized me. You know, in many aspects, and 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 kept me going to the end of the game just because the. You know the most charismatic and one of the great, one of the great, great managers of all time in the game has um, has given you that praise. So I was only seeking that praise for about fifteen years. You know, so a slight exaggeration, but you know what I mean. Given your relationship with him, do you wish he could have seen more of your managerial career? Do you know? Interestingly, Mark, he did actually see. I invited him to a, a league cup final, one of our league cup finals, and he came down. Now, he had obviously had retired from the game. Uh, maybe health wasn't phenomenal, but looked all right. But my wife and daughters tell me. So we invited him down to the game as a guest to Wembley. He sat in, in, a, in a room at a table, first of all. And my wife said he, he stole the show again. Absolutely stole, as you would expect, really. But he was he was mesmeric. He was fantastic. I mean, I didn't witness this because I, I was obviously trying to win a football game down, down, down below. But uh, apparently, really, really brilliant. So he did see he did see quite a number of games, or was still alive when I, when I was managing Leicester uh, Leicester City at the time. Probably uh, he did die in two thousand and four, I think, when I had been a couple of years at Celtic. So he had uh, he had from a distance at least followed the career. So that that honestly that was fine. But as I say, stole the show at Wembley in one of those League Cup finals. Given the ups and downs, uh, given how much you. Uh, carry the the disappointing days as as you've said are you happy you chose this as a career myself and George before you joined us were talking about how you trained 
as a barrister as well. Would you now you look at it? Would would a different fork in the road have helped? Absolutely not. Not at all. Professional football from the age of about six was what I wanted to do. I wanted to play being a professional player in England. I wanted to do that there from a very very early age, maybe about eight years of age or something like that. When I saw the uh, European Cup final with Eintracht uh, Frankfurt and Real Madrid. So I was absolutely, no, no, this is it. This is what I wanted to do. Of course, it wasn't, I had no real phenomenal interest in management, even throughout my playing time. But at overall, uh, absolutely. And I would, would I change things? Would I have regrets? Of course I do. I've got lo- lots of regrets. But if I could have sliding door moments, we'd win the UEFA Cup. We would win Aston Villa, would have won the League Cup against Manchester United. Vidic should have been sent off in the game and we would have won that. And Randy Lerner and myself might have had a, a better relationship towards the end. But so this is the thing that I, I, I'm i always fascinated with, with managers. I've asked you this before, and it's the thing I just can't get. If it's the negative stuff that stays with you, if it's those defeats, if it's those little moments where you could have done something else, what is it that makes you keep coming back for more? Why do, why do you keep, why do you do it? When I say that, George, I, I mean, I, I do think about those. And then what you start to think is, what would you have done better? Could you have done something better? Could you have changed the... Could you have changed, made a um, a positional switch in the game that might? Could you have? Could you have foreseen danger? And a lot of times, you know, the game is it's so quick, it's so quick in many that the very, very best in the game don't see some things, you know. And I'm sure have regrets at the end. Yes, I say that those are the things that, that you know. When I'm pondering over stuff, that's when I think, oh, I wish that uh, you know, I wish I'd done something there, or uh, I know it would have been great to have won that. But deep down, I think there's um, a driving element to all of this. You just you still want to you want to be participating. You want to be in it. I felt that when I in my start of my career, playing was what it was all about. Uh, managerial stuff was very much secondary. But at least you're still involved in the game. And if you could win, if you could win, then life would still be still be okay. Do you have a thirst for writing now? Is there going to be a second book on the way? Let's see how how it, how it goes. For instance, you know, I I um I jokingly said that I started off uh, Thomas Hardy being my favorite author, and I wanted to, and I started off writing like Thomas Hardy, and may may have finished like Oliver Hardy. You know, so, so, but perhaps, but it's uh, it's um, it's it, it was good. It was it, and it was fine, and I I actually enjoyed doing it. I uh, love talking to you, Martin. On behalf of myself and George, th- thank you for joining us. Good luck with the book, and hopefully we will talk soon in some capacity. Okay. Cheers, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. Martin's book on days like these, My Life in Football, by Martin O'Neill, is out now and is published by Pan Macmillan. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. <laughs>